Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's been a few weeks. Yes. It's been a whole year, kind of. I mean, last time I saw you was last year. Ha, 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 ha. I mean, like, but I didn't even see you at the last show of this year. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was busy. Nick, Nick, Nick invaded. I mean, I was busy, too. Yes, it was good. It's, it's, it's all good. It's all good. Um, how was your Christmas? Oh, my goodness. Um, let's see. Christmas was good. Sorry, Father um, Anthony's waking up from a nap, folks, so. <laughs> yes. My new, first nap of the new year. Um, no, Christmas was good. We had, uh, mm-hmm. I had four different masses that weekend, and um, they were all lovely. Mm-hmm. In particular, um, our 11 a.m. mass. Uh, we have this anonymous donor who pays for music for our midnight mass and our 11 a.m. mass. Mm-hmm. And so we had timpani and strings and the trumpets and a choir and the organ. And it was just very nice, very nice, awesome. liturgically speaking. Nice. Mm-hmm. So, Did you have to do the yeah. midnight or just the 11? I did. We had, uh, I had the 10 o'clock mass. So we had a 10 okay. p.m., a midnight. I did the 10 p.m. Um, and then, yeah. Were your, so was your church full for all the masses? It was, um, no, the, our churches were not, well, we had a lot of masses and a lot more people than we normally do, which was nice. Yeah. So we had good crowds. Mm. Good. Yeah. How many, how many people does your church fit? Uh, it depends on who you ask. Um, I have two churches. Uh, one claims to be like over a thousand, but I'm not sure if it quite works. The other one's okay. more like seven, eight hundred, something like that. Okay, so they're large churches. Yeah, relatively speaking. Yeah. Cool. And then did you get some time off after that? Yes, sort of. So um, yeah. basically, my pastor and I try to work it out where I will, uh, I like didn't take my day off so that he could have a few extra days off. And then yeah. he does the same thing for me. So I right. did get a few days yeah. off. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Spend, how much yeah. ravioli did you consume? Oh my gosh, so many! Um, it was <laughs> delightful. It, uh, I just—that's. This is a Sharapa Christmas tradition. Yeah, saw producer Indiana um, open up presents and all that good stuff. Nice. Then we had a whole bunch of ravioli, and then I fell asleep. It was great. I I, I noticed that my my broadsword did not arrive as my Christmas for my Christmas gift. And I'm bitter. I don't think I don't think a broadsword was promised. I, I don't think I it was think a promise. Yeah, uh, I, I think the listeners would disagree. Well, I since when do I care about the listeners, Father Harrison? I show <laughs> up half aw- half awake, half awake. <laughs> I know it's like it's talk really about funny. how they're all terrorists because they back into parking spots. Who cares I, uh... what they think? I've gotten used. To, we've been doing this for so long now. Like I'm used. To, I can tell when Father Anthony's kind of like half out of it, and he's probably really happy. I asked if I could take the lead this week, right now. So, <laughs> listen, I would be more with it if I realized that I was taking the lead. But like, I just you know, he's gonna sit back. This and is relax. what's happening. I'm, I'm, what's I, happening. Yeah. yeah, you're just interrogating yeah. me about Christmas. I feel like well, I'm in the hot like, seat. Gonna, like, how was your Christmas? Gonna, how many ravioli did you well, eat? How big gonna, is your church? Take... How many people were there? It's like, whoa, well, buddy, I, actually, let's chill. I, I, well, just because, like, I don't, I don't know. I've never been to your church yet. I still need to get out to Pittsburgh at some point here this next year, maybe, hopefully. You know, mm. and, and maybe you need to get up to my church at some time next year, maybe, hopefully. 
That'd be nice. Use up that 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 flight credit that we saw. We do to need to use. do that. <laughs> yes, we do need to do that. So. I'm waiting for my passport. Uh, it's it's somewhere in the mail. Is it? It's on, it's on its way. I assume Back. it is. I sent it in like a month ago. So okay. I just love how how like yeah, this is hilarious. Um, cool. No, uh, yeah, we're going to take a little different turn with the podcast today for obvious reasons in a second. Um, but uh, so welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony. Yeah, I'm sorry, folks. Like, it's usually I'm I'm gone because yeah, we're going to take a little different turn. So I went off a totally different direction. But uh, my Christmas was was I also had four masses. Three on Christmas Eve. I had to do an early, early mass, like 11 a.m. on Christmas Eve at our mission church because it was the only time I could make it work with the fairies and everything. Mm. Uh, but uh, it got done. And, and I mean, I was pleasantly surprised with the turnout uh, for all three of our Christmas masses at the main church. Uh, apparently, we've had higher numbers than in years past, even before COVID, which shocked me, honestly. Oh, that's great. Yeah, like we had somewhere between 1,500 to 1,700 people for the three masses, which is quite good for our church. We, My church can, yeah, it's, it's a large church too. It can sit 800 people. So it, uh, but what was shocking to me, I don't know, like, I don't know what your habit is. I find like I give, I have a homily ready to go for Christmas Eve. That it's usually, I, I'm not that gimmicky pastor who's going to say, well, I hope to see you next Sunday. Uh, no, that is not no. my style. I'm not going to do that. That is not the way I, I roll. Um, but I often preach a homily to propose a question to people to consider their life <laughs> in the light of sure. Christ, um, which is, I think, a, a more appropriate thing to do. But mm-hmm. um, the but the next day, like every church I've been in prior to this one, and then this is my first normal Christmas. It's my third Christmas in my parish. My first normal one. Thank you, COVID and snow. Um, My experience, even at the cathedral, was that Christmas days are always very low attended Mm. because people are doing Christmas stuff that morning and family stuff, and and, then it's fine. I was expecting maybe maybe 150 people on Christmas Day. Maybe. We had like 500. (laughs) How many people does your church hold? 800. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. I was shocked because for Christmas Day, I just love to go like off the cuff with the gospel because it's awesome. Sure. I love I love the prologue to John's gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I'm looking out like three minutes before Mass, I'm like, I'm going to have to take a different – because the crowd I was expecting, who were there too, uh, mm-hmm. they're not the fullest of the crowd. Like there's a lot of people I've never seen before. <laughs> um, sure. And, and so I'm like, okay – I'm going to have to figure out how to blend this all in together somehow. So I did and it, I managed, but it, it was like a shock to me because I'm not used to people showing up on Christmas day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was good though. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of people came to our later mass. So the nine o'clock, I don't know. I have no idea what happened at 7am. We had a guest priest for that. God bless whoever said that mass for us. And then the 9am I had not a lot of people. But the 11 was packed. 11 was full. I think because uh, the kids wake up super early to get their presents open and everything. That might and then be by it, then, yeah, they're was, ready to... Yeah, because ours was 10.30 Christmas Day. Like, mm-hmm. I just kept the Sunday mass schedule, essentially. I only... I Now, I did not have a midnight mass, though. Did you have a fake midnight mass? 10 p.m. Yeah, that's what I call a fake midnight mass. 
Well, here's the do people. I want this is the thing. I don't think people realize you don't need a midnight mass anymore. It's true, but you know it's you, a thing. It's a thing. It's a kind of a holdover from the days when we didn't have vigils anymore. Right. Right. And so it's like, well, Christmas Day only starts after midnight, which is kind of weird. It's always been weird to me. It's like, you know, it's like because like in the early church, they had a watch, you know, and they're like watching to say, OK, it's midnight. Now it's Christmas. Now it's uh, Easter. Now we can celebrate. Um, so the vigil idea makes sense to me that way. Uh, so I'm like, no, 10 p.m. is the mass of Christmas night. And that's fine. And there's doesn't have to be at midnight. Besides, by the time I get home and everything still like I, I got home, it's 1230. Then you have to unwind for a bit. And it's like, yeah, it's true. It's still late. Like it's still a late time, you know. And uh, that was good. It I was. Think it my was. Pastor got to bed until like three a.m. because uh, right, our exactly. mass apparently was super long. And then they were, you know, yeah. cleaning up. And did he have any of the Christmas so. Day masses? Uh, yes, he had nine thirty to eleven thirty. Ooh, ooh! God bless the man. Hey, that's it. Was his choice? I'm happy to do. It. The thing is, God bless we him. all the eleven. Yeah, the midnight mass and the eleven a.m. mass are kind of like our high masses, and so yep. we do want to do one of those masses because it's kind of nice, but, right? Uh, but yeah, but to, then just yeah. Anyways, yeah, but no, it was it was really nice. And I went they went home, and I'll be honest, like I was actually really tired, and I uh, I I told my folks like I love my family deeply, but I feel like Christmas has always got lots of expectations. And uh, I cannot fulfill those expectations because I am a zombie for two days after Christmas. <laughs> mm. Oh, 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 because is the other thing. What? Friday, December 23rd. I handed in the first chapter of my thesis. Oh, a Christmas present so, to your thesis advisor. Yeah. So I was up at 430 every day the week before working on my thesis. Jeez. Yeah. So I was very tired by the end of all this. So uh, that's fair. Anyways, yeah. So it's it was you know. So I was home. I was kind of tired. I was starting to wake up again on Wednesday morning, but that's when I was leaving. So I just it's just I told my folks actually next year I will not be home for Christmas because it is one of those wonderful years where Christmas falls on a Monday. Oh right, that's gonna be good. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be awesome. So much massing. Eh. That's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of massing. It is. It is. Yeah. Anyways, well, everyone knows. I'm sure Nick will give us some title like Ratzinger Extravaganza or Benedict the Sixteenth Extravaganza or something like that for today's episode. We're going to take a little different tone today, folks. As you, I'm sure you've been all eager to find out and listen and wonder about the news. And if you haven't heard the news, well, you're living under a rock. Uh, Benedict the Sixteenth has passed away. He passed away mm-hmm. on Christmas Eve at 9:34 a.m. Rome time, uh, surrounded by the Morris Domini community. Sorry, what did I say? You said Christmas Eve. Oh, sorry. Yeah, New Year's Eve. Sorry. I'm also tired a bit. But uh, anyway, so he passed away and it was very, you know, it, it was sad-ish. I, like, so I don't know, like, maybe we can start with this. Like, I don't know what your reaction has been like because everyone's like, oh, I'm, like, I'm sorry for you. Like, I've been really appreciative, actually, even parishioners knowing how much I love this guy uh, have been like, say, sorry for your loss and everything. And I'm going to do a mass on uh, by the time this drops, I'll have already done a memorial mass at the parish for him and everything like that. As every good pastor should do, there should be a, a mass and to pray for the to gather the people to pray for a deceased pope. Um, but sadness has not been the overarching theme for me, and I think in part because 
especially I would see it on Twitter and I'd get a few photos from friends who knew someone who had visited him or something like that. And, and he'd not been looking, he looked, he's been looking at death's door for like six months, you know, uh, yeah, he has not looked, he does not, he looked like, uh, a skeleton literally of his old self. And, and so I wasn't shocked by this or anything like that. Um, and I, I, yeah, so my, my, my feelings these days, like I've been trying to process this and think like, what is this? What's going on with me and, and me? And I'm like, no, I don't, I think honestly, the word that I've been able to sum up is gratitude. Mm-hmm. So that's been kind of my reaction to his passing. Cause like, yeah, 95, like death's coming at some point. Yeah. Um, and the gratitude I think was actually and any any like lingering sadness was actually kind of almost like set aside when I heard what his last words were before he died. Jesus, were? Jesus, I love you. Or mm-hmm. in German, as I'm sure he said it, Jesu, ich liebe dich. Yeah. Right? Uh, and for a man of such a towering intellect... Uh, of such uh, humble service to the church that those are his last words. Uh, it's quite powerful. I am sure. I'm certain there'll be some book out there in the future that that'll be the title with something to deal with him or something like that, you know? Uh, that'll yeah. be the title for it because it really is, it's so simple, but it's like, it's weird. It's like the moment shifts the meaning of the words into something far more than that. We say it all the time, but it was something just very beautiful and, and meaningful to me. So, so, yeah, so gratitude has been the feeling I've been having. So I'm not sure like what's, uh, if if you know, it's also weird because it's like this is the first time. Like, how do you? I mean, this is our second pope death in our lifetime. You're 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 mine, right? But this is the first one, not just for us in terms of a uh, pope emeritus. So it's all different there. But it's also, uh, yeah, it's the first time for us. Like, yeah, how do you deal with the death? Like, it's, there's no conclave coming up, so there's not all that hoopla doesn't happen. And uh, my theory is that the media don't the secular media don't seem to care as much about his death because there's no conclave coming, which means there's no way to speculate about the politics of the conclave, which brings the clicks and the money and the ads. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah. So I actually, uh, preached a little bit about this, uh, Sunday. Um, because Benedict was our Pope, just like I think a lot of Gen Xers, uh, priests who are a generation, uh, before us, uh, John Paul II was their Pope. Um, I think whoever's pontificate you kind of come of age in, uh, I think priests tend to have a particular connection to that Pope. I mean, how many priests, uh, I remember all of the, um, like all the media and propaganda, all the vocations stuff and videos that I was watching when I was in high school. It was like uh, priests talking about how great John Paul II was. And I only kind of vaguely knew who he was. Um, mm-hmm. And it was only in um, seminary that I began to understand who our Pope was, uh, Benedict. And then mm-hmm. reading his theology and um, being more in tune to what his pontificate was doing um, just had more of an impact on me. Um, mm-hmm. And so in a special way, I think myself, um, you, and I think a lot of guys of our generation, like Benedict was our Pope. Um, mm-hmm. He was our father when we were coming of age in the priesthood uh, and in our um, vocations. And mm-hmm. it was only when I started reflecting on that that I began to, because at first it was like, you know, he's 95 years old. 
it's yeah. time for him to rest. You know, yeah. he's had quite yeah. the life. It's time for him to go home. And I was happy he was able to go home in a relatively peaceful manner. Um, but yeah, definitely. I've been, I, I did not, ex I started to get emotional when I was preaching about this. Cause I was mm -hmm. kind of just, um, using that to lead into my uh, homily on Mary. I was quoting, uh, that little line from Dave's, uh, carry toss asked about how being a Christian is not the mm -hmm. result of a result. lofty choice or ethical, ethical choice or lofty idea. Um, and then I talked about Mary's encounter with God mm -hmm. and with Christ. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, I started mm -hmm. to get emotional about it because I do miss uh, Pope Benedict mm -hmm. and I miss his pontificate mm -hmm. just because the, it just meant a lot to me uh, in seminary yep. and everything. Um, so felt that. Um, and you know what? I felt more grateful for my priesthood and his priesthood. You mm -hmm. know, when, uh, as far as like, there's not a lot of church people I genuinely look up to. Um, a lot of times when I'm mm -hmm. looking up to people in the church, it's it's saints of bygone eras. Um, and I'm not saying Pope Benedict is, mm -hmm. is a saint. I think he will be, but, you know, whatever. Um, and he, it, it just hit me more than others. Like, oh, we, we really do say, like, the same mass. Um, and, like, just my connection to him through the priesthood, I just never thought about before until New Year's Day mass. And that was kind of hitting me, too. Um our connection like in the liturgy and also just seeing kind of like what my parish does with our liturgy. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I think Pope Benedict would be very comfortable saying mass in my parish. <laughs> it's, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, just the way we, our movement stuff. So I just felt kind of a closeness to him in, in that. Yeah. And, uh, I had a weird thing where I was actually, uh, had a day off on Saturday. And oh. so that night <laughs> I was able to celebrate my intention for, uh, for his soul. And, um, nice. and it's just finally our, like our parish, uh, like our intercession that my pastor wrote was very good. Just, um, praying that he would be, uh, forgiven all of his sins, that he would receive his eternal reward. And it was just nice. So anyway, yeah. that, those were my first, yeah. I'm still kind of mulling it over in my head about everything, but yeah, as much uh, gratitude. Yeah. A lot of gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to kind of talk briefly first, maybe about my experiences of him and around him and kind of why I've become obsessed with him in my life in the yeah. healthy, healthy sense. But, uh, because it was also kind of, um, it was also always kind of a little bit of a, I don't know, bit of a Providence thing or just a happenstance thing of how certain things kind of fell in my way. I think I shared, and I won't share it today, but I, you know, I had a conversion experience in 2004 and the summer of 2004 is when I started to read books for the first time, really, uh, I really got in. Well, I mean, yeah. I read them in elementary school and stuff. But I mean, like, I really got into like serious reading as a adult uh, just after about six months after my conversion. And I was at like a bookstore somewhere, and I saw, and I had heard about, you know, and and it was part of that youthfulness of, oh, he's the head of the CDF, like he is, he's the 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 doctrinal czar, like this is the cool guy to to. And, and yeah, there was like exactly. the, some website called like the Ratzinger Fan Club online at the time, and everything. Like it was just. Uh, and I didn't really know much about him, but I remember, so the first book I read by him was Called to Communion, which is a book on ecclesiology and the episcopacy and stuff like this. And uh, and I maybe understood maybe 50% of it at the time. Like, And it's sure. not one of his harder works, but it was, you know, early on. And I kind of, I really did enjoy it though. I found, I found his style attractive and, 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 um, 
I love the way he explained things. He was always very biblically based. Um, and so I, that was always, that was, yeah, that was the first book. And then uh, when John Paul II died, uh, I kept on saying Ratzinger is Pope. And especially I felt that uh, I stayed up late with a bunch of young adults to watch the funeral of John Paul II, mm-hmm. which was a very historic event itself. Um, yeah. And, and hearing the homily, I'm like, he just talked himself into the papacy. <laughs> and this is the kind of man he was because like if you read Seawald's biography of him you find out that he you know cardinals were going up to him in between the death and everything or as John Paul was getting close to his end people were saying you have to be the next pope and stuff like this and he kept on saying no no um, but he was a man of integrity that he could not say the words he, like, he had to say the words he had to say even if he knew what mm-hmm. they would bring um, right. And, he's not like and it he, turned out, it's not like he was campaigning for Pope, but he needed to oh preach what he needed to preach and say what he, he had to say. Be, and and when you read about his biography in the nineties, you realize like I didn't know how many health issues he actually did have. He had like he's had a pacemaker for years since the nineties and uh he's blind in yeah. one eye. You know, like he's <laughs> yeah. it's kind of amazing when you think about it. Um and but this humble service of his has just always been really something uh to be admired. Anyway, so he becomes Pope, and, uh, you know, I read his stuff here and there, and, and like, I'm liking reading his stuff and, and all this jazz, and then I uh, go to seminary, and I didn't, I mean, I read, I read, I remember doing a paper on his debate with Casper on the universality, and on the universal in particular church and its relationship. There was a big debate in the early 2000s between the two of them about that, um, and I, you know, I read his stuff and everything, and I, and then Jesus and Nazareth was a very uh, profound uh, encounter for me, for sure. But mm-hmm. um, and Regensburg speech and all this jazz, right? So I I was always dabbling in his stuff, but I never found myself at that time like uh, going towards one particular theologian. Um, but what happened was after I was ordained, I was asked to do a seminar for the missionaries of charity. And at the time, I was reading a bit more Ratzinger. I was just getting a bit. I was I, I had just read, for example, School of Prayer, which was his catechesis on prayer from his Wednesday audiences. And I want to talk about his Wednesday audiences later on. But, um, and I said to sister Basilia Marie, I'm like, well, like, why don't I do something on the theology of Joseph Ratzinger? Because it seems to be totally not understood all this stuff. Like no one seems to understand his legacy at all. And no one seems to really talk about it. Like it just seems to be, there's just not a ton out there, which is odd to me, at least in the English speaking world. And she loved the idea. Yeah. So I went with it. And so I had to just like plow it and go in depth into it. It was very, it was very enlightening, and it was a very profound encounter. And it was perfect timing because when I applied for my doctoral program, you had to do a the way the UK system works is you have to put in your um, dissertation topic ahead of time. Like you have to put your dissertation proposal, the method, everything you want to do, you have to put that in mm-hmm. as part of your application process. I'm like, well, oh well. I've been reading a lot of rats here. Let's let's go that route. <laughs> and, and and I yeah. was really getting into his stuff on on sacrament. And actually, it was really this is the beautiful part was when I worked at the MCs. Like a sister uh, Faustine gave me this quote on um, the nothingness in the apostles and how their nothingness is a communion with the nothingness of Jesus. Right, the Son is nothing without the Father, and uh, you are nothing without me. Jesus says to the apostles, "That nothing is the principle of the communion." And he goes on to say, "This is sacrament, the language of the church." I've quoted this a bit a few times on the show. Yeah, turns out. 
That's from Called to Communion, the first book I read <laughs> by Ratzinger, right? And uh, and that became kind of the lens that I wanted to do for my thesis. Um, but it wasn't until I started doing my thesis that I really kind of really fell in love with his thought um, in a really deep and profound way. And um, so I've always had a deep devotion to him in many ways as just a, a humble servant who is not a careerist. And anybody who thinks that uh, has not given the man a, ch a chance uh, at all. Um, but, and I found in him a man of like the way I kind of try to describe it is he's got, he's got that kind of German grand intellect with the Bavarian pious devotionalism. Hmm. Uh, like he's got that effect affectivity in his like that that last line of his death is a very Bavarian and beautiful and simple thing to say. Yeah, and he didn't he never saw the two things opposed to each other. No, and I think that's what you know. If if you haven't like read anything he's written, like uh, all of his writing is this um, search for and contemplation of the face of Christ. Like if, exactly. if you get yeah. to like the heart of it, it's that. Um, and so it's it's. I was going to say, it's not surprising at all that, like, his last words would be, Jesus, I love you, um, or let Jesus. Exactly. Like, that's that's what all of his theology is pointing towards. Uh, and that's, um, I guess, he while he can get very technical different things, none of his work ever felt like just a dry exercise in theology for me. Nothing I've read of his. Yeah. It's always because... It always stems from the reality of this relationship that God has with us. Um, yeah, it's real for him because like it, it is yeah. real. It is. It is. It, his faith is is actually faithful, um, and you can yeah. tell that. Yeah, and yeah, and I think, uh, and 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 he's human. Yeah. Uh, one thing that was very enlightening to me and Seawald's biography. Um. I, I worry it was hastily translated in some sections, but that's that's neither here nor there, really. But um, <laughs> when he's talking to Benedict about his early life in the priesthood, uh, Benedict, I mean, he doesn't show his hand, and I don't think we are owed him showing us his hand. But you could tell that he, he went through some difficulties in his early priesthood, and I think there were questions around stuff like celibacy and stuff like this. Um, mm -hmm. And... and he was he was a man who had a heart you know yeah uh, yeah uh, in a really profound way like his intellect and his heart like for him he was he was augustinian through and through in the end right uh, a man with a deep mm -hmm. intellect that was always rooted in the heart and he was never shy of his humanity i think because all we ever saw from him was his officialness even like as head of cdf mm -hmm. you miss out on his humanness sometimes. And I, I think part of that is like, especially with the papal office, I mean, that's just, that just goes hand in hand with it. You're not going to see the personal side because for him, he has to almost kill the personal side to let the office do its thing. Right. Um, but I was just going to say quickly is like, I remember I saw a, a clip a few weeks ago of, uh, I found it somewhere in the depths of YouTube of him doing some tours of Ignatius press offices in like the 1980s here in, in the, or in oh, the yeah. States there. <laughs> and man, did, like, and I've heard this from many people. He had a wicked sense of humor. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, and apparently, like when things would get heated in the CDF, CDF offices, he would always drop a joke to to ease the tension. Always, always dropping jokes. Like apparently, he was quite he was quite the life of the party when it came to joke being a jokester. And <laughs> we, I don't think people ever got a chance to see that side, which I think would help maybe loosen some of the uh, stricter visions of his personality. Well, I think actually, actually one thing that I, I kind of miss and respect the most is that um, while I think he approached the papacy with, with humility, he was a very aware of what the office meant. Yes. And I think all like the little things, um, everyone talks about the red shoes and whatever else, but I think it's because he understood how important and what the office meant and he respected that. And he felt like it was his duty to uphold that office with dignity. Um, and so he, he was, he did put aside some of the personal for, for the sake of, mm. of this larger call, if you will, to be yeah. you know, head of the church. And uh, I miss that. Uh, I think, that, I think yeah. that was one of his better qualities. But if you don't understand what's going on there, then I think you can misinterpret that. Yeah. I mean, for him, theology really did imbue life. It, theology and spirituality are integrated in him in such a profound way that mm -hmm. uh, it influenced every way he approached every office, his call, everything, and his resignation, which I might, I might give some hints because this became a topic in my first chapter that I wasn't expecting. And it kind of blew open the last two weeks of my yeah, we'll see. I haven't. I'll, I'll, I'm going to pray about this and think about this. I don't know if I want to show my hand quite yet because I think it's really important. I want to make sure I'm really solid on it. But I'm just going to throw a little mm -hmm. teaser there for now, at least. Uh, but maybe like then, like us. So okay, yeah. And he was formative for both of us, obviously. So like maybe I want to kind of, and I think it's important. Like so, people always ask, why do you call him Ratzinger? Why not Benedict the Sixteenth or anything? Like, well, part of that is because in my own thesis. Uh, I am focusing on largely, more or less, on his career as Ratzinger. So that means I'm bracketing papal stuff and I am bracketing official documents when he was the head of the CDF uh, because of what you just talked about. The distinction between person and office was so vital for him. He really understood the distinction between a private per theologian in the life of the church yes. and his own theological investigations and his having to allow the magisterium its proper room to maneuver and speak in its authoritative way. So he would push away his own theological ideas even sometimes for the sake of the magisterium. Not that he was ever against them, but he just thought he understood even that maybe his ideas would be in concert, but that they might not be easily understood sometimes, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a really important distinction to keep in mind. So I'm focusing on that. So I tend to call him Ratzinger my thesis more because of that. Uh, I'm trying yeah. to use that. If I talk about something, if I'm bringing papacy stuff, I'll call him Benedict the Sixteenth. I'm trying to do that, you know. And it, and this comes from Jesus of Nazareth. He published it under his personal name, not the name of his office. And that's a very important thing for people to understand. So that's kind of why I do that. But I do think most of his writings. So most of his. So intellectually, I mean, intellectually, his career is is vast. His complete works, which is just his stuff he wrote prior to being elected pope are 16 volumes in German. And some of those volumes have two or three bands or books to them. So there's 25 books in total. And an average yeah. page count of a volume is 800 pages. That's good. That's bad? a lot of writing. It's a lot of writing. It is a lot of writing. So yes. 
and then and then you have a zillion texts as Pope, obviously. So and that's part of the other reason it, it helps narrow things down a bit of what I have to look at. But I don't know. Like I, maybe I want to start off before we talk about his time as a Pope. I think his in, I think his impact as a theologian I think hit larger larger as a pope in some ways because of the audience. But do you have a personal work of stuff he wrote before he was pope that you really enjoyed and why? <sighs> um, and you could say no too. That's also pro- possible. Uh, okay, because my, my first thought was actually Jesus of Nazareth, but like no, um, right? Uh, that was when he spoke. Uh, uh, probably then. Um, uh, spirit of the liturgy um, would have been yeah. the one that at least probably had the most profound impact on my own understanding of what I do as a priest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've uh, I've uh, read it a couple times, um, and what was the most impactful yeah, thing I, of that book? Like, was there an idea or or a thread of ideas or or just? What was, I mean, what was, uh, first of all, okay, overall, what struck me um, was just the beauty of what was going on. And it kind mm-hmm. of opened up my view of the liturgy. Um, it, it stopped it from being just a, a, because uh, sometimes even in the aspect of like piety, like this is the holy sacrifice of the mass, which is what I still call it and what it is and everything. But, it can sometimes that language can kind of narrow everything that the liturgy means and his yeah. connection of the liturgy to the old testament to creation to the very structures of reality kind of like break open um new horizons as far as how the liturgy is concerned yeah it, it's so like it, that. It, it's like yeah like it's if i can put words in your mouth it sounds like Please. he kind of exposed the vertical dimension of the liturgy to you like both yes. within its like created order and within its uncreated order. That is to say, like that it's not just something the church just makes up and does that we have to do because we're yes. Catholics, um, but rather this is something that reality itself is acting in, and that God enters into and lifts up into Himself. Yes, it just connected dots I didn't yeah. know were there. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah and yeah, just yeah. kind of opens like, up a new horizon for what's going on in liturgy, yeah. and uh, also yeah, gave that, me more that, like that, hope. Not, I mean, not like I, I thought the liturgy in any sense or mass was limited, but him opening that up for me um, made the mystery new again for me. Right. Like, because you can and, trick and, yourself into thinking you understand it because you, you pray it, but. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I, I mean, and that was a foundational book for me, too. I've read it five or six times now, I think, or something like that. Like, I've lost count. Um <laughs> It's definitely the one that kind of broke open the idea of ad orientum for me as as actually vital. Oh, absolutely. And but also a patient hope and waiting. Ratzinger was probably the most unprogrammatic guy you will ever meet, which is why I love him. <laughs> yeah. He un- he saw what happens and he talks about this in other places around liturgy about uh how a bureaucratic imposition from above is like just totally foreign to the life of the church. That organic development is the way it goes. And I think the book is trying to emphasize that idea of organic development by proposing ideas and then to see where they lead towards. Um, and that's really not 
we're that's not the way we often think. We think, oh, we how how do we plan? Let's plan the liturgy. No, there's nothing yeah. to plan. Like I don't, I do not have a liturgy committee in my parish for this reason. I will meet with people mm-hmm. in different ministries when I need to, but I don't have a committee because there's nothing to plan. Uh, follow the journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do what the church says. Yeah. <laughs> and when you do, and you read it, and you pray with it, you start to see the beauty that's within it. He he is of firm agreement that the way the reform of the liturgy was implemented was not up to snuff with what the council desired, and that is bureaucratic yeah. impositions and some interferences. And then some weird ideas in its implementation, even even contrary to the text of the book itself, was just just took off after in the seventies and eighties. And but he had this trust to say, let's just put the truth out there and let the truth take its hold. And so I'll give. I think the great example of this is in the ad orientum question. He says, okay. This may not be possible right now for a variety of reasons, and to impose this too quickly would do irreparable harm to people's sensibilities because he already knows what that feels like. Let's put a cross on the altar and orient our, Mm -hmm. and then the priest and the people who are oriented to the cross, the the larger cross in the sanctuary or whatever, and you're all oriented in the same direction towards Christ in that way. This is a symbolic way of doing this. What a very, like, it's actually quite a, pragmatic in the proper sense of the word vision of things that says, okay, let's take a small step at first. And, and, and I, I just love that where he, but he has a confidence to also expose the untruth of things. Like I think he really helps you understand why liturgy is so hard to imbue in ourselves today, why it's so opposed, why it's so like, so the book is a, is a work of, of a confidence in the truth but without it having to be reactionary, ideological, and all these other things that we're so used to doing. Yeah, I think, uh, so this is getting to another kind of like kind of broad strokes of um, how he's impacted me, is that um, it, it kind of goes along with like, the way he is a theologian um, of the Second Vatican Council and his mm-hmm. emphasis on a hermeneutic of continuity. And behind all of that is this other kind of uh, trust. I think you see this when we we, we talked about um, some of his essays in um, what's that uh, book he wrote with Balthazar, Mary, Mary Church um, of the Source, of, uh, Mary yeah. Church of the Source. Yeah, this this really Marian stance he has of trust, of patience, of utter confidence, and being unafraid of what's going on. Because m- so many Catholic commentators today, popular ones, operate in a spirit of panic. And he, mm-hmm. who had a much deeper and broader understanding of what was ailing the church and what was going on, none of, no panic ever comes into his writings yeah. Um, yeah. at all because it's not his church. It's Christ's church. And ultimately, yeah. there is a, a trust and uh, a utter lack of fear in that. Um, yeah. Like, he, he, like when he's talking about the liturgy in the spirit of liturgy, he has very strong opinions and he doesn't like, you know, um, uh, like rock he music. states them strongly. <laughs> like rock music. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but he, but he doesn't do so in a spirit of either anger or panic or emergency, and or that kind of or bitterness attitude. towards those who like it or right. whatever like that. But he's trying to say no. But we want to enter real... to, to seek the truth. Yeah. Like let's let's seek it together. And that might be the mark of someone who is actually truly intellectual. Um, yeah. In the sense that he 
if an idea is wrong, and even if an idea is evil, he simply addresses it as an idea. And it's not something that, that triggers him in that sense. Um, because he's like, okay, let's, let, we have to take this idea seriously. Let's do it. And then dismantle it. He does so in a spirit yeah. of calm because he knows that the truth is eventually going to prevail. And that's yeah. comforting well, there's, in his there's, writing. There's two things here with this. One is the simple one. For him, truth is a person, not an idea. And yes. truth has overcome death. And so he has a confidence in that person to go radically even towards, quote unquote, into the errors, not to be subsumed yes. because he actually believes the truth can overcome them by taking it, but not in a destructive and competitive fashion, but in a redeeming fashion. It's constantly, the truth is chaotic. Yeah. It constantly goes into the other to draw it out and to bring out what is actually true and real and to bring it to full life. Um, so anything, anytime he's talking about like liberation theology, Marxism, all these isms, uh, materialism, all this stuff, relativism, he never does it in an accusatory fashion, but because he recognizes that in the people who buy into these things, that this is fundamental to them for some reason. And he mm -hmm. needs to carefully take down the old scaffolding to build up a new scaffolding that brings them to true freedom in life. So that's definitely a big part for him. Um, the second, oh, and the second bit with this was actually uh, the day of his death, Archbishop Ganswein did a, an interview with a German EWTN anchor correspondent or whatever. So I watched it at like 1230 AM on Thursday <laughs> now, I guess at that point. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and I found it very enlightening and I, this is, and it kind of what you're talking about this Ganswein, I think really emphasizes this. Um, for Ganswein is, is a bit more hot blooded. <laughs> Um, he, he's a bit more passionate in that sense. And he would go to the Holy Father, oh, you know, this is going so wrong. This is so bad. This is so bad. And this is in the retirement, right? This, oh, this is blah, 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 blah. And Benedict would kind of calmly always remind him that uh, he actually, the scene he would always point Ganswein back to was Christ, the, the apostles in the boat in the stormy sea and Christ seemingly asleep on mm. the boat. And, um, and then eventually when they call it to the Lord, he, he calmly fixes it and he says, you see, the Lord never sleeps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Gansman found that a very helpful really, thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I'm like, the Lord oh, never sleeps. Keep, I remember. Well, we should get that in this year's cycle. So I'm like, I have to remember that one. I like that. Uh, the Lord never yeah. actually sleep. Um, and what a beautiful portrayal of just that confidence of, I have my part to play. And I think he actually takes this from Newman. I was actually watching with a friend last night his uh, his homily at the beatification of Newman. I have a particular role, okay. a particular mission, um, a particular set of skills. No. But, you know, uh, and I'm going to fulfill that. And God asks of me nothing more, nor should I do anything less. Yeah. And he was a man of humble uh, submission to this always. Like when he was elected, he didn't want to be elected, but mm -mm. he felt the election was God's will for him. And so he had to, he felt he had to say yes. We'll speak briefly about the resignation. At the end. I'll give a little hints at the end. Uh, we can get that okay. before we end off. Um, so yeah, uh, for me, pre, I'd probably say called to communion is probably the most influential work for me just because of that one quote that I keep on going back to around sacrament and nothingness. 
and also just that little happenstance of the first book I ended up reading ends up having the quote that's at the center of my thesis, you know, uh, and unintentionally. Um, so the, and, and, but you, and there's good stuff in there about the papal office and the episcopacy. And he's just always humbly kind of proposing the truth to people in new ways. Um, I, when it comes to his early work, this is the stuff I've been kind of delving into. I've read everything in English and some of it multiple times, anything that's been written in English. And I'm slowly making my way through some of his early German stuff. And that's not been, if it's before 1968, it tends not to be translated yet, which is kind of sad because there's actually a lot of good stuff in there. And that's what he's at his most, up until 19, until he's named a bishop, that's when you get like the best true academic stuff because he's got the freedom to do it. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago, I think I mentioned it a brief that, that insight around like fundamental theology, what I was finding with that. And that was really cool and, and all this stuff. So, um, so that's been really interesting to me. I mean, like in one way, I would say that everything has been influential on me from all of his works, every, I, cause I take it in and he's formed me as a thinker. Like to think, I, I, when you read someone so much, you start to think like them in some ways, not that I'm equal to him in intellect in any way, shape or form, but he's also formed me as a pastor in all of his writings, because I'm of a similar opinion of, of, of truth and theology come together. How he has, like, I think I kind of almost intuited what I've learned later on now through biographical stuff, the long patience of truth, right? So if I have people in the parish maybe who I don't agree with or who I think are just they're totally off about maybe like they're super liberal on something or something like that, you know, whatever. And not just this parish, it's any parish. It's just being a pastor period. He's really helped me understand that they are part of Christ's flock too. And that the impacts of events have on people in history can really uh, have profound effects on them. And that we need to hear and take those things seriously. And so you need to have a wideness of heart to them, to everyone. And it's the same with people who might tend towards like the conspiracy theory stuff or whatever. Um, you have to have a wide heart to them because they're a part of Christ's flock. And until they do something objectively wrong that publicly undermines like the pastoral office or anything like that, you take your sweet little time. He did this, con I think reading Seawald's biography, especially volume two, you really get a sense of the man as he was at the CDF. And you hear about the theologians who'd go into that office and say like, how, how much charity they received from Ratzinger and how much he bent over backwards for them, even if he didn't agree with them. And that is, again, that's the confidence in the truth that he had. Um, so I'll, I, I think, and the, the non-planning aspect of me, that, that too, that's a big thing that all comes from, from Benedict. So I, I feel like I, I imitate a man I love in every aspect of my life 
and uh, not as well. I don't live, and I have to live in my own context. I have to take uh, my own person's. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to equate myself with him, but I just say he's probably the most, in terms of like grand people in my life, like who I've never encountered personally. I've I've seen him at World Youth Days and stuff like this, but I've never encountered him like face to face and had a conversation with him. Sadly, although I hope and pray that he's in heaven so that I can have conversations with him that way, um, and hopefully he can intercede for me for my thesis. But uh, uh, uh he has, you know, outside of like local figures, he's probably the most influential man. man in my life. He forms everything. My attitudes, my pastoral attitudes, my encourages me in my prayer and my theological study and everything. And he, I think he encourages me to be myself in the best sense of that word of take yourself seriously in the light of Christ and let your strengths and your weaknesses shine forth in his light and allow him to reveal his will to you in that. And then you'll live your mission. And so like, like a phrase I often like to use is run towards reality. And I think that's something I could, it comes a bit from my encounters with communion liberation, which he was also quite close with. Um, but it also comes from his theology. The word runs towards reality really for him. And so he did. And so must I. Um, I mean, just so, I mean, I could literally talk for hours on this, but before we end off with resignation stuff, um, I'll give a little tease, but, um, what about his papacy? I mean, and I don't want to get into policy stuff because that stuff I think is often mis misrepresented and it's just, it's like, it's almost like you're wasting your energy to even talk about it in some ways. Um, was there an event, uh, a teaching, um, a document or something like that that you found was quite influential for you? I think um, I think Deus Caritas S was probably the first papal encyclical I ever read. Um, yeah. Just because like I that was, you know, same for me, you know, um, so so that um, absolutely uh, was. Um I, I, so I don't want to make this a, a contrast with anything else, but there there seem to be. It's hard to know um, whether or not there were. Um, if I if I just have like rose colored glasses um, looking toward the past, it's always it's always a, um, a you know a temptation to see that the past was better than it actually was. I don't want to do that or anything, um, but I just trusted. Um, there was just a lot of trust in for me in his papacy and what he was going to do or say or anything, um, and and maybe even at times there was an overconfidence um, in his capabilities, skills, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's the biggest like feeling memory I have of it was just I, yeah, he's he's Benedict, he's gonna do the right thing or say the right thing or if something came up in the news, I know for sure it's going to be wrong and easily explainable once I look up what, you know, he's going to do or what he did or said. So there, there's, there's that. His year of the priest, I think, had a pretty profound impact hmm. on me because uh, on, um, on that is actually when I started looking more at uh, um, John Vianney and his life as well. Um, so those are the things that stick out in my brain. Okay. Um, yeah. So for me, I mean, him just becoming Pope was very influential for me in some ways. Uh, hearing his words at, 
like so personal encounters was hearing his words at world youth day mm-hmm. and his homily on the wise men which i refer i not refer to but i i keep in my heart every time i have to do preach on epiphany sure uh is is quite profound for me because it was a event too that really helped me redirect me towards the certain priesthood again um there was that uh i remember Summarum Pontificum coming out when I was at the Tertium Millennium Seminar, which was quite a, a talk. And then it was the same year, the same time his uh, Jesus of Nazareth came out. So it was quite the intellectual hotbed in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, Regensburg Address was quite interesting. And it, it's been it's been one I've, I've read a dozen times now and every time. And we've talked about once on the show here when you did your um, Ratzinger impression. Yes. Uh, so that is, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, uh, so that... And it's interesting because like where I get frustrated, even from like Catholic personalities talking about him, mm-hmm. is they talk all well, stuff on faith and reason. Like I don't think you understand what he means by that. Mm-hmm. And actually, like for example, like the Regensburg Address isn't first and foremost about faith and reason. Well, it is, but in a secondary sense, it's actually about the public nature of theology and it's in its privileged place in the university, in the public university. Yeah, because if theology speaks to the whole, it requires that, and the university is open to the universal. It must be open to the theological. That's the primary argument of the Regensburg lecture. No one seems to understand this. It really mm-hmm. frustrates me. Um, uh, um, there's two things. I mean, his encyclicals were profound. Uh, he has mm-hmm. this thing in Caritas and Veritate on um, ah integral humanism which is very interesting concept. Uh, and he's right about it there. Um, Space Salvi too. And it's interesting. We read Lumen Fide. You can see where kind of like the transition happens between the two on and writing oh, absolutely, it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you, you, you know, he definitely, and, and I actually, I give props to Francis for keeping his sections in there. And it's, again, that's part of office, right? That the person yeah. is, the office is greater than the person. And so we got to keep that. Um, his one I would say is one of his more so he have he has about four or five major speeches that are are very important I would say, um, his the Bundestag in in Germany, um, the Parliament in England, um, Regensburg. There's one more I'm thinking about, but I can't remember right now. But the one that's actually the most important to me was his speech to the representatives of culture in France in 2008. I think I did an episode on it early on in our show. I think uh, we did the, I think we did do this early yeah, on. Yeah. 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 And it it's to me it's actually one of his most I think it's actually more important than Regensburg in some sense because it speaks to themes that he's talking about. So the um quick quick aside is there's three periods to his theological life. Three ideas he's kind of confronting more or less. It's not to say it's exclusive uh from Priesthood to 1968, he's dealing with the problems of existentialism. From 1968 to 1989, he's dealing with Marxism. And then with uh, because you have the student revolutions where a big impact for him, not that they changed him theologically, uh, that's not the case at all, but the questions changed. And so his answer, how he approached the questions and everything changed too. Sorry about the garbage truck outside. Um, I'm at the Art Cathedral right now. So, um, so Marxism becomes the major kind of bugaboo topic for him at that time with the fall of communism in 1989, he then focuses on liberal capitalism as a problem, (laughs) which is very interesting. It's all his writings around Europe focus around this period, almost all Mm -hmm. of them exclusively. Very interesting thing. Um, 
and so the talk in 2008 plays into a lot of those themes and it's it's pure benedict he takes the situation we're in a old we're in an ex-monastery does monasticism have anything to say to us today about europe and culture <laughs> like <laughs> probably and he just, like you see all these people and you can i, I remember seeing like a video of it and you can see like people like why is he talking about monks to the to yeah. us well he knows what he's doing folks I, I would oh, yeah. say it's one of his most important talks he ever gave. It was that that talk mm-hmm. in 2008. And maybe I'll revisit mm-hmm. it again at some point here on the show. Um, but in his papacy, the most ignored part of his papacy in terms of teaching. And I am shocked by it. And I've already been proposing to people like, we got to write some stuff on this. His Wednesday catechesis are gold mines. Hmm. So the Ignatius Press printed a collection, for example, uh, uh, the school of prayer, the saints teach us to pray. Catechesis on prayer, like mind-blowingly beautiful and amazing. Highly recommend, highly recommend. Hmm. Uh, I I actually think his catechesis, he's the master catechist teaching us how to do proper catechesis. Interesting. Um, and And what's he doing? He's going, it's pretty much mostly on saints let's talk about the church fathers let's talk about the medievals and let's talk about prayer those are your major i i know there are other ones too and i'm forgetting them right those are the big ones and saint paul was another one for the pauline year mm-hmm. uh, and then catechesis right, yeah. on priesthood for the priestly year what is so f- amazing is his back to basics form of being a pope and catechizing faith hope and love yeah saint saint yeah, yes. prayer mm-hmm the creed let's focus on the basics and he does it in a masterful way so if you're looking for something more accessible of him read any of his wednesday catechesis uh you will find a gold mine of stuff and i think you'll see him most himself and most alive in doing those things yeah um so um i i've been teasing this a little bit and this is all I'm going to yeah, say. Wait, for do now. You, do, are you are you saying that you, you you know why he resigned? What were the dark forces? What did they have over him, Father Harrison? This is what I hear from people. They say, "Oh, I wonder what they had in their files. They they bribed Benedict to get out of the out of the papacy." Were they, no, nothing. Who, there's wait. nothing conspiracy theory at all. Are you sure? Um, no church deep state. I'm a hundred percent. I'm a hundred percent sure. Um, but there are two words that pop out in his last two weeks. So I read up, I reread all his stuff. He said in the last two weeks of his papacy after his, from his resignation onwards. Mm -hmm. And I, I reread his bit in the last Testament about his resignation. And so I'm going to say there's two and a half things actually that you should pay attention to Mm -hmm. focus on what he means by the word weakness because he mentions it a lot, his own weakness. Mm-hmm. The second one to focus on is conscience, something he wrote mm-hmm. a lot on and worth paying attention to. And the sec- 2.5 is uh, especially read his speech to the Cardinals the day, I think it was the day, day of or the day before he formally resigned in tw- uh, February 27th or 28th, whatever it was. Uh, and his what he's talking, he's talking about the church and what the church is. Just read those. 
That's all I'm going to say for now. Read it. Mm-hmm. Pay attention. And then research what he says about these, what these, what these things mean to him. So read his older stuff and come to an understanding. And then we might get a sense of, of things. It'll be in my thesis for sure. Uh, my supervisors are yeah. very excited about what I had to say. Uh, there's more to it, but that's all I'm going to say for now. Just because uh, I, I, I've learned, like I have a lot of opinions on these things. I can easily just tweet them out and say them all the time. And, and uh, I think people will so easily grab onto an idea if they find it's good, even if it's not their own. Yeah. And then just run with it. Mm-hmm. And I got to be careful about this one because it's an, it's important to my thesis. So I, I'm holding sure. my cards close to my chest publicly until it's published. That's that's fair. But All right. I am grateful. And thank you, Pope Benedict, for your years of service. And mm-hmm. um, and especially for your prayer and suffering for the church in the last nine years. Uh, Pope Francis mentions this at the vigil for the Mary Mother of God, that only God knows how much she suffered and prayed for the church. And yeah. I think there's something profound in those words. So mm-hmm. I'm grateful to him. I am grateful for all he has done and I'm grateful for his humble service and his example. And I just encourage everyone to go find something by him to, you can honor him in this way is by reading one of his works, uh, whether it's by as a Pope or as a, just as a, a theologian, go read some Ratzinger this week. Sounds like a good idea. New Year's resolution. More there you go. Ratzinger. More all right. Ratzinger. Hey, well done thanks for listening please leave a review on itunes and tell your friends about the podcast tell your enemies too because jesus says we must love our enemies you can find me at father scrap you can find me what huh what huh at father they can find you on twitter i didn't say twitter okay you're being you're being i didn't say anything about twitter Okay. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at FR Harrison. <laughs> Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Uh, do you have a theological emergency? By the way, we've got a lot of good ones coming up. Thanks for keep for your all your emergencies. Keep calling. Call 412-912-7995. That's 412-912-7995. Peace. God bless. <laughs>